In Israel, if you're not hopeful, you cannot be an Israeli. Your prime minister seems to have been embroiled in one corruption case after another, and the largest of those seems to be coming to a head right now. So we have to get inside and kick out all the people who corrupt the system in order to replace them with people who work for the Israeli citizen. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Cecile Shea, filling in for Brian Hansen, and today we're talking with the youngest ever female member of Israel's Knesset, Stav Shafir. Stav Shafir represents the Labor Party in the Labor Tenua Coalition that is currently the largest opposition party in the Israeli Knesset. The Knesset is the legislative branch of Israel's government. It passes all laws, elects the president and prime minister, approves the cabinet, and supervises the work of the government. Despite her relative youth, Stav Shafir has made quite a name for herself in Israeli politics, demanding government transparency, social and economic justice, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and decrying what she sees as a move away from Israel's traditional ethics and values. So welcome again, Stav. Hi, thank you. Or can we be Israeli and use first names? Or Of course. Okay. <laughs> We're really please, glad. Please do. <laughs> We're really glad to have you here today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So, uh, Stav, for much of its history, the Labor Party and its predecessor parties have been the preeminent political parties in Israel. Some of the labor movement's prime ministers included David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, Itzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, Ehud Barak. But it seems like for the last 15 years, labor and really the entire Israeli left has been somewhat in decline, both numerically in the Knesset and in terms of polling data. So what's the current situation with your party and more broadly with the Israeli left inside the country? Well, in the last uh, two decades, the Israeli political system shifted into, not really shifted because we have a multiple party system, but became more and more divide, divided uh, with more parties. Every election round, there is another new party um, building upon the lack of trust that many Israelis have in the political system, a kind of a lack of trust that this, that we see a phenomenon that we see all over the world. In Israel, a country of 8.5 million people with 20% um, Arab population and an 80% Jewish population with uh, major security challenges and, you know, being in the one of the toughest neighborhoods in the world, our political system, when it becomes more and more divided, it becomes more sectarian as well. And this sectarianism and the control of um, sectors of our society uh, is a great challenge for the Israeli society. With that, the progressive camp that labor is the leader of became more and more divided. Um, after Rabin was assassinated 20 years ago, our political camp went into, became a political camp that's led by two, three, four parties um, saying generally the same things, but going into elections um, separately instead of creating one political block. And doing that and that kind of structure is actually leading to a place where the um, majority of Israelis want one thing, but the government is doing something different. Um, we have, when you check the, the three big questions of our society, the first would be security. You have 65% of Israelis in every poll supporting a two-state solution. 65% and that's after 40 years, almost straight, of right-wing governments. Um, that's after decades 
of um, suicide bombers and and terror on the streets and 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 fear and lack of trust in in the Palestinians. But still, you have 65% of Israelis want two-state solution, want peace. Um, and that's opposed to what, to what our government is leading to. When you go to the social and economic question, you have an even higher majority, actually a pretty crazy majority, of uh, over 90% of Israelis supporting um, a, a, an economic, uh, political, economic policies that are pro-society, that puts the human being at the center, which means a public a social education system and a public healthcare system. That's what 90% of Israelis want. And the third question is the separation of religion and state. And even there, you have, and that's a very divisive question in Israel, but you have 75% of Israelis want to have civil marriage, want to have LGBT rights, um, and want to see a separation of religion and uh, state policies. But the government is doing something different to all three questions. And the reason this government is being elected is because the right wing in Israel goes to the elections in one party, one political party headed uh, by Benjamin Netanyahu. The left in Israel goes to the election in four to five different parties. Some of them define themselves as central parties, some of them trying to blur um, ideological ideas, but still all of them have the same basic ideas about what our future should look like. Uh, and, and, and the political blocks are relatively the same size with slight advantage to the progressive camp. But going to the election in four to five parties means that we can't win an election. The responsible thing for Israel would be for our party and, and our different parties on the left to go to the election together as one political bloc, saying, saying and, and telling Israelis that we're going to do the responsible thing, put our egos aside, um, uh, allow and, and, and give Israelis the opportunity to elect the leader of this political bloc or say that the political bloc will be led by the party that would get the most, the, the highest amount of votes. But still, we're going to lead Israel together. With that, if we go uh, uh, and we choose this strategy, we can win the next election, definitely. So related to that, your prime minister seems to have been embroiled in one corruption case after another. And it's and the largest of those seems to be coming to a head right now. And yet the movement in the polls does not seem to be quite as large as someone would expect, giving, given his, um, his current political problems. How do you explain that? Um, first of all, we have strong um, legal and democratic institutions, and, and I trust that the police will continue to do a pretty amazing job uh, uh, investigating uh, through these um, uh, corruption stories and, and, and find the truth as, as, as quickly as possible. Um, corruption everywhere is the thing that, political corruption is the thing that prevents the public from getting the services uh, and prevents citizens from getting the, the services that they deserve. Um, spending their tax money in, in ways that are not serving the public and not serving our, our interest. Um, but serving political interests, and we have to avoid that and stop that. And of course, corruption is also hurting uh, our security um, and, 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 and hurting our future. And the other result of that is um, it's hurting trust. And when in a democracy you're losing trust, and when people lose trust in politics, they participate less, 
they um, becoming less hopeful about the future, that's a great risk. And it's a greater risk for a society like Israel. Again, a small society with big security challenges and, and with social challenges as well. The, the lack of trust in politics is the thing that, you know, pre- prevented me for a very long time to even think about politics as, as a path uh, for myself after uh, leading, uh, being, uh, you know, organizing the, the, the protest movement and after um, realizing that if we want to create policy changes, we need the political system. And however, the reason the Israelis are still... Um, I think, and, and, and all of us are still uh, uh, in question about, about the future, the political future of that is because of that lack of trust that is not only related to a specific corruption story. It's a general feeling about politics. Uh, one of my greatest missions in politics is to change that. The reason that since I got into parliament, what I've been doing was to fight corruption and work in order to build greater transparency in the way that things work and accountability of politicians to the public is because I understand that without building again the trust between, between people and politics, our political system will go the wrong way. And when I just got into parliament and, and exposed uh, a series of corruption stories in the way that the state budget worked and fought them and created transparency in the budget for the first time in Israel's history, And then when I got re-elected, I built a transparency committee in parliament. Today, the Israeli parliament is one of the most transparent parliaments in the world. It's one of the first parliaments to have a, transpa- a specific committee um, dedicated to fighting corruption, opening up and, and, and creating a strong policy against lobbyism in politics, um, making all the different committees open to the public and completely transparent, um, forcing politicians uh, to declare their interests publicly uh, and to be more accountable to the public. With all of the achievements that we had there, we built the Transparency Committee in the OECD organization. And today there are 90 different parliament members from different parliaments around the world participating in this discussion that we're leading about how we create more transparent policies to fight corruption and create better integrity in political systems. Now, I'm sure that this movement that I, I think is a very optimistic and hopeful movement will lead to, um, to the fact that better, uh, more courageous, more honest uh, people will decide to enter political systems and municipal systems uh, around the world. We see this movement happening And, 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 and only with that movement succeeding, we will see political systems that are really, truly dedicated to, to working for the people. So a follow-up, one big difference between Israel and the U.S. is the way that your elections occur and the public funding of elections. So it seems like in Israel, a person can enter politics, even national politics, without really deep pockets. Am I correct in... in in assessing that, that it's perhaps a little easier to enter the political system in Israel than it is in the U.S.? And maybe you could explain a little bit about what someone needs to do to run for the Knesset in Israel. Yeah, well, I'll be, the, the, I guess, the example of that, because when I decided to run, I was um, 26 years old. I, had, I was in the middle of my, of my, of my master's degree at university, and when, um, together with 10 other students, 
we started the protest movement in 2011, um, I had no ambition of getting into politics. I had, as I said, very um, strong lack of trust in politics. I was an activist, but I thought that we should change politics from the outside. Uh, and I had no idea how politics worked. I was not a registered party member. I didn't know how the whole thing um, worked, and I just had a general lack of trust in, in how it worked, but without knowing anything about what's going on inside. And that, I think, reflects what most people my age um, or most people under the age of 40, generally speaking, uh, were feeling when I decided that it was that I needed to run and that I had to do that because the young generation doesn't have the privilege of not doing that. And if we think that politics is corrupt, so we have to get inside and kick out all the people who corrupt the system in order to replace them with people who work for the Israeli citizens. Uh, so I had a month to run. I had no money and no political experience. And what I did was to recruit, to call, to use social networks, to recruit people to come and help my campaign. And I had hundreds of people around the country pitching tents um, in the voting places to remind people why I was running to solve the housing problem uh, as the first priority and, and to convince people to, to elect me. In my second campaign... I decided that I was not going to, that was when, when we had, we went for another general election three years ago. Uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to get any big money to support my campaign. So I put a Facebook uh, post saying, what do you prefer to do with 50 shekels, which is about, I don't know, almost $15 uh, to buy a big pizza or to help me save our country? And I fundraised my entire campaign through donations of $15 uh, and, and with uh, thousands of people coming to help and becoming part of this campaign. And I have to tell you, the energy that this kind of fundraising gives the campaign, the fact that people become part of that. When people invest, people who don't have a lot of money, but they decide to invest, you know, a few dollars in a politician they become part of what this politician is doing. And this politician doesn't owe any money to uh, interest that would not be in the public interest, but is only committed to serving the public. And that's a major difference. We have, um, thankfully, in our political system, um, very uh, clear laws uh, on funding and Generally speaking, we go into that path of more um, smaller prefer preference of smaller donations. Again, we have a registration of lobbyists in politics as well. So this also prevents um, um, lobbyists from, from uh, you know, working freely inside parliament. And there is a very strong public attention to that. There are more, since the protest movement, um, there are more and more organizations just dedicated to make politics more transparent and to make political money much more transparent. Thank you. That's really inspiring. Um, in a moment, I'm going to read you a question that came in on our Facebook page here at the Deep Dish um, office. Um, but I want to preface it by saying that one challenge that Israel, as you say, a small country has that I can't think of another country that, that has to follow is that Israel is the guardian both inside its 1948 borders and within the territory that 
international organizations consider occupied, is the guardian of a number of religious and holy sites that are extremely important to Christians, to Jews, to Muslims, and to Baha'i. And that is a additional challenge and that that complicates peace negotiations, among other things, and, and general relations around the world with the diaspora and with the other religions. So with that, I'm going to ask you, read this one question and ask you to perhaps respond more generally about Israel's responsibilities to the world religions. Um, this question is from Christopher. He notes that Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre, revered as many as the site of Jesus's crucifixion and burial, reopened a few days ago after Israel backtracked from a plan that would have taxed um, church commercial ventures and possibly expropriated some former church property. And um, in reaction to that, the church had closed its doors for three days. What do you think, he asked specifically about what is at stake here, but perhaps we could broaden that to what is at stake with Israel's relations with the world religions? Well, first of all, one of the most exciting um, experiences that you have as, as an Israeli is that every time you go on a hike to the desert or to the Galil, you know that you're walking on paths that were the places where the Bible was written. And 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 thousands and thousands of, of, of years ago. And 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 you have this unique um, connection to um, all religions that Israel has is something that we take um, a lot of care for and, and, and a lot of respect for. I think Israel, when it comes to, to the places that are, that are close to, the, to, to um, Jews around the world, like the Western world, the, Western world, the Kotel in Jerusalem, um, Israel should be an act as part of our, of, our, of our regional mission to be the capital of Judaism. Um, and the place where Judaism can flourish and, and renew itself and feel free to all streams of Judaism as freely as possible, where every Jew can feel at home. And this is the same for every other religion and for every other person who practice any kind of religion. Israel should look at it with a lot of care, not taking arbitrary decisions, um, like that tax decision that was not planned in advance and, and should not have happened in the first place. And should take a lot of care for that. And, and you said this is something that is challenging peace. I think actually that this is something that can create a path for peace um, and, and, can use and can be used as an advantage and, and, and not only as a, as a threat. It is a great advantage to have and to be the keeper and to be um, responsible and placed uh, in this specific region in this specific historical and, and religious uh, sacred place. And, and, and it should be used as an advantage and as a mission rather than uh, a threat or, 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 or uh, something that causes, that, that, that challenges us. It's a complication. What? Th that, yeah, or exactly. rather than as a complication. Well, thank you very much uh, for that answer. I, I think for my last question, um, it piggybacks very nicely on what you just said, I think. As I speak to my Israeli friends who are my age, maybe a little bit younger, I'm struck by how pessimistic they are, especially people from the left, about the possibility of an agreement with the Palestinians in the near future or about a return to the optimism of the 90s when 
My friends were even talking about being able to end the draft. Is your generation equally pessimistic or are you optimistic? And do you think your generation is going to pick up the mantle for peace and move forward? You know, our national anthem is called Hatikva, the hope. In Israel, if you're not hopeful, you cannot be an Israeli. And the problem with much of our political camp was that for the last few years, for the last, not few years, but actually two decades, many people, many politicians on our side just gave up. They forgot what it means to win an election. And, and they stopped thinking about themselves as being able to win. They stopped thinking about the campus being able to win. So although you see the numbers in the polls, you see that 65% of Israelis still believe in a two-state solution. And you know that this is the only solution that will promise the future of Israel. You know that this is um, not only the moral solution for both sides, it's, it's the secured solution. It will, it's the only um, possibility to allow Israel to continue to be a democracy, a place that is equal to all of its citizens and with a Jewish majority and, 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 a, and a place that could continue to be Jewish and democratic. This is the only possibility. We know that this is in our interest. So yes, things are not perfect. And maybe we don't trust the other side as much as we would like to do that. You know, that's the, that's the case generally with people who are considered your enemies for, 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 for some years. Uh, you can't just fully trust them. But it's our security interest. It's our national interest. And, and the, the idea of Zionism, the idea that could bring our grandparents to come from all of these different places. My, my family is from Iraq and Romania and Poland and, and Lithuania. To, to, to come from all of these places and to fight for our country, for Israel to happen, for this miracle to happen, was the idea that we can make the impossible possible. That's what made Israel, and this is Zionism. The fact that today our political system is trying, and the right is trying to convince us that things are impossible, and that the best thing that we can hope for is a status quo of terror and wars is against the idea of Zionism. And it's against the idea of hope, of our national anthem. And we have to fight that from despair and from an ongoing feeling of losing. There is no way of making big changes. And Israel is a place where big changes and big possibilities can be achieved. Um, and I know that, and more and more people from my generation um, understand that this, this, this um, DNA is the kind of thing that can make us the startup nation that we are so proud of. And that kind of DNA is the thing that can help us find a solution to the conflict. We need to make it done. And we need to make it done within a very short, a very limited amount of time because things are changing. There is no real status quo. Things are changing. They're not changing in our interest. We have to create a two-state solution because that's the thing that will help our, help our country to have a real future. Member of the Knesset representing the Labor Party, Stav Shafir, thank you so much for being here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs today. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. If you have questions or comments about anything you heard on this episode, you can join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs and let us know. As a reminder, the opinions on Deep Dish are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. 
If you liked the show, please subscribe and share Deep Dish with your friends. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. Our research associate for this episode was Alex Hitch. I'm Cecile Shea. We'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.